Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Once again, I appear to be suddenly joined, as usual, by two real academics from actual institutions— Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee, and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you once again from the tasting room at the Boone's Farm Institute of Oneology, dedicated to putting fine southern North Dakotan wines on the map, here on the beautiful Hoople campus. This week, we're talking about the discovery of grape pips at late antique Avdat in the northern Negev which has us wondering about, well, grapes and wine. We've long known that well-regarded and widely exported wines were made in the northern Negev, but new research has provided a more specific chronology, showing that the wine industry did continue from the late Byzantine period into the early Islamic period, and the profile of the wine itself. One of the pips was from a white grape whose closest modern relative is a variety still grown in Lebanon. So how does a wine industry arise in an arid zone? Did it start as a monastery making wine for itself, an enclave of traditions and technologies, which found that it had a winner on its hands? Isn't it all really about marketing? Just how did you make it known in antiquity that you produce a tasty wine? Were there street corner wine tastings? Was the reputation just developed by supply and demand? Or were there middlemen involved? All we know is... You like what you like. Um, yeah. We'll go straight to the lightning round, uh, and I have I have several possibilities, but I think in the interest of of um, national security, we'll go with the the simple one: um, red or white. Uh, wine. <laughs> I don't even think we could we could be talking about we could be talking about blood cells. <laughs> That's true. I I just think you need to answer we need to answer the question without regard to any greater degree of typology. My answer for blood cells would be different than my answer for wine. I think. Well, you got to choose which you want to answer. No, my answer is the same actually. <laughs> I I'm I'm agnostic when it comes to blood cells. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you have them. Right. And yeah. as long as they're not rosé. My answer <laughs> is red. I don't even have to think about it. Okay. My answer is also red. Yeah, me too. So who's drinking all this white wine? <laughs> we have a friend who uh, who only drinks white wine. But white wine gives me a hammering headache. Yes, exactly. exactly. Right. Something about, and that the worst hangover I ever got. Which which actually resulted in my buying a piece of art. Um, <laughs> that's a story for another time, <laughs> or maybe no time, <laughs> another broadcast. No time like the present. Well, the year was. Um, I used to like white wine before it used to give me headaches. There was a period. Yeah, I mean, in 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 hot weather, an, a very cold one, very cold glass of white wine, delightful. 
Although rosés are also good in hot weather. Rosés. Well, Beaujolais are chilled Beaujolais in hot weather is for me. Oh. What I like. I've Third. only had unchilled in cold weather. <laughs> Delicately <laughs> heated Beaujolais. <laughs> um, I mean, when someone orders Chardonnay, I literally just stare at them. Like, what are you doing? How can you drink that stuff? Right. But that's just me. Okay. What about Grenache? Have you had the same negative? No, just Chardonnay is my most negative visceral reaction. Because What's it's become a kind red? of uh, trope. No, I've always just the taste. Oh, really? Yeah, that whatever. it was it? Oaky? It's an oaky taste, right? I guess. I prefer to yeah. separate my trees and my vines. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what about, well, how do you feel about Rieslings? Not not so good. <laughs> no. no. So the sweeter, dessertier kinds of things, not for you. Now, if they could. No, not. Sweet. I could drink. If I could drink dust and have it taste like wine, I would do that. <laughs> it's the, the, the official flavor profile of, of New Jersey wines, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure they make good New Jersey wines. Please don't sue, yeah. don't sue us. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on here. Okay. Um, Somebody else but, introduced this one. Well, why have we called you here today? <laughs> to discuss flavor preferences? No. But because, as I like to say, the boffins are at it again. And thanks to, uh, thanks to very, 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 very careful excavation and sifting and sieving and analysis and extracting things with little tweezers, um, grape pips in this case, from late antique Avdat in the uh, in the Negev have been extracted and analyzed. And um, wouldn't you know it, this one, this one sample seems to be a, a white wine. But why is this important? We knew that they drank wine in antiquity. Is that rhetorical? I don't know if it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> no, it's or more of an it. actual question. I'm I'm a little lost here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I couldn't get any social cues from the intonation. <laughs> <laughs> it, I think I think this is very interesting because, um, as we know, there are, you know, the 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 drinking of the fruit of the of the grape goes back many 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 thousands of years to the Neolithic to Iran and Georgia, the Black Georgia. Sea area. Let's not start a, a war in the Caucasus by not giving <laughs> Georgia their due. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a, the central pillar of Georgian tourism. Well, yeah. we'll give them that. We'll, we'll give them that, uh, that honor. Of right. Well, I mean, Prima. one thing I read um, was that um, at least one scholar, probably many think that uh, grapes have mainly been grown for wine and I was thinking, really? I mean, I like to serve grapes as dessert also. You know, it's not just for winemaking. What do you yeah, guys no, think? No, I think that? there was ample mention of grapes being consumed, raisins being made and consumed, and wine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I like the thought of just taking the grapes and trampling them. I like to think that we're using grapes for other things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you I think that we're entitled to think that. A very useful suggestion for anyone out there who's just taking seeing grapes and making one out of them without <laughs> you can also eat them. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> handy, right. handy tip from the SUNY Extension Bureau. And, and we talked about that freezer at Lagos. You can also freeze grapes for a delightful repast in, in, in hot summer weather. Yes, actually. Frozen grape. Yeah, yeah, that's quite. But let's, let's tease this out a little more, I think, so that our listener is going to stay with us. So they, they've reanalyzed or they've analyzed grape pips from Avdat dating to the Byzantine, from the Byzantine period into the early Islamic period. Right. So roughly the fourth through sort of seventh centuries CE. And they found, and part of the rationale for this was pure research to try to find out a little bit more about uh, Byzantine trade networks, the trade, the uh, creation of commercial wine production in the Southern Levant, the export uh, of these wines throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and, and into Europe, the relationship between European varietals and these earlier Middle Eastern, Near Eastern varietals. But there's also a, a very practical uh, application of this kind of research, and that is um, the technology used and the varieties created in the Southern Levant in the Byzantine period uh, is in a very arid region, and right. this aridity, these you know adapted varieties to high high arid zones, uh, isn't could be instructive going forward with a warmer environment and you know global warming to the sort of you know sustaining uh, wine production into the later 21st century. In other words, we need to know how to grow the crops that we're dependent on in warmer weather. And yeah. so there's there's a lot here. And in this case, there's a sort of a direct correlation between what our ancient descendants were, were doing and um, applying that to the modern world. One of the, one of the interesting things that that I never fully processed was that there are only eleven yeah yeah cultivars grape cultivars um, uh, on which you know the vast vast majority of from which the vast vast majority of wine in the world is is made you know Cabernet and Chardonnay and Grenache and Merlot and blah 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 and but there are thousands of of varieties of uh, of grape all over the place and it's you the grape is pretty much ubiquitous in europe asia western asia and also in north america and um so so and it grows in all these different micro environments uh you know from from colder to warmer and to all sorts of soil conditions and aridity and all this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was very interesting. And, um, you know, when I was reading this at first, I was thinking the sample size is so small and it is a small sample size, but we're talking uh, about a handful of pips, right? They, they found, I, they, I believe they worked on 16 pips, but half of them were used for carbon-14 dating and the other half were used for ancient DNA. Well, well no. in some cases, and this I found very interesting, they would split split the pip and and mm -hmm. do both forms of analysis. And I want to know a little bit about, you know, the the technology behind pip splitting, because that's, that's <laughs> one very, very, very 
sharp blade. And That's and that reminded point. me of that study done on obsidian blades versus stainless steel uh, blade scalpels. And doctors, wow. surgeons who were part of this study found that obsidian scalpels were far sharper than their than their metal uh analogs well that's interesting i don't want to get off on too much of a tangent but wouldn't the obsidian <laughs> blades break more easily i mean <laughs> i mean metal i mean maybe but you know okay anyway they're sharper was, yeah all right all right a good so, question yeah. for another day exactly and if our listener happens to be a surgeon please <laughs> write in or, yeah. or call in operators are standing by now yeah um I'm sure just they had the intern do it with, you know, an exacto knife or something. But <laughs> right. All right. Let's, let's All right, stay back, back to here. it. Um, but in any case, even though it was a small sample size, they did get some really interesting results. That was what I was going to say. Yeah. Right. I, but I, I think that the, I think though, that they're sort of missing the important, the important point here, the important archeological point. And yeah, there are all the, yes, that these, Grapes from Avdat from the late Byzantine, early Islamic period are grown in these wacky conditions by, you know, sort of contemporary standards, very um, arid overall conditions, rocky soil, cold nights, super hot days, this, this sort of thing. And, but conversely, the vast majority of, of grapes that are grown for wine um, are grown in this narrow uh, in this narrow band of of soil conditions, climate conditions, uh, from only eleven primary varieties. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about is homogenization that you know uh, hom homogenization of of uh, genetic variability to create uh, commercial commercial products that have you know reliable and predictable characteristics and this is a this is something that goes back thousands of years in fact because they're exporting they grape mm -hmm. grape producers wine producers by the roman period by the iron age um even earlier are producing reliable consistent product uh, based on a limited number of varieties that they found to be nice and productive. And, you know, they're squ they've squozen out all of these local variations. Um, the, right. the, the writers of this thing, of this piece used a great phrase, disjointed micro populations, <laughs> which, which I kind of, I kind of love. I want to use that elsewhere. Yeah. But well, what, so it's, it's the old story of globalization, in a sense, producing right. producing this product um, with with local variations being kind of pushed to the margins, like the highlands of the Negev or something. Yeah. And now we've rediscovered the utility of these of these products because because they're great and because they're useful and because the situation demands it. Right. So, so I want to give a little bit of historical basis or, or context to this because uh, we know from historical sources um, of the Byzantine period that uh, wine was exported from from Byzantine Palestine, 
uh, and that it mainly came from uh, the ports of Gaza and Ashkelon. And we also know from archaeology, and we know also um, that that wine, some of it anyway, came from the Negev, was manufactured in the Negev. And then um, we know from, and this actually really fascinates me, um, from archaeology of various Mediterranean port cities um, in Southern Europe, that uh, you have you have ceramics um, of a Gaza type jar, Gaza ware type jar that uh, transported wine that ended up all over the Mediterranean. So we have other historical, archaeological, globalization evidence before we even started doing this ancient DNA stuff. Right, there are historical accounts of of Roman emperors uh, or a Roman emperor uh, who who had half the vineyards in southern France destroyed because they were competing with product from Italy. Uh, and I don't know what variety of, of wine there, there was. And obviously, if you go to Rome today or any you know Italian port city, you'll see piles of uh, sherds from, from amphora, you know, a mile high. Uh, so vast was the was the trade in that particular that particular period. So again, it's, it's globalization, but it's also globalization comes with a price and that's vulnerability of, of the, the product itself. Yeah. I mean, that's the big issue today about having, you know, crops with very little, um, you know, genetic um, diversity and being susceptible to either heat or, you know, pests or uh, becoming immune to certain pesticides and what's going to happen. And this is the whole GMO argument. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of, you know, the problem with these huge, big, you know, multinational corporations like Monsanto, um, you know, they're creating yeah, but in the, in the grape world, it goes back even further. Right. And I, and I, the one bit of research that I did that I allowed myself <laughs> was to read up a little bit on the, um, phylloxera crisis of the 19th century where a night where, um, English botanists imported um, North American grapevines to England and Europe, which had the phylloxera bug on them, okay. which prece proceeded in a matter of only a few decades to wipe out something like, you know, 60 to 90% of all, all French um, wineries. Oh dear. Um, and which was only solved by importing bug resistant rootstocks from North America and planting them in France. Huh. So once again, it was probably the first time that America came to the rescue of France and, uh, <laughs> and they grafted uh, all these different varieties onto the rootstocks, which are resistant to the bugs. Ah, and... So they have the original strains of vines because they just use the roots. But Correct. Didn't... Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very and interesting. Um, again, you know, sort of global global trade and its agonists. Yeah. Well, one other thing that was kind of a subtext in this article um, was the, the change from the Byzantine Empire to the Umayyad, to the Islamic Empire, because a lot of things changed or are thought to have changed with the coming of Islam. And you're kind of shaking your head in a... <laughs> Not well, so I mean, I think that that's the traditional view, right? Because, so that that's the because the historical narrative suggests 
big sociological differences. But as we're learning in all of these periods, you know, change comes from within. Right, <laughs> it right. happens slowly. Usually. Right. And that's that was sort of one of the points towards the end of this article that that I wanted to point out that uh, they say. So so actually, so if I was understanding the beginning of the article correctly, the the um, stratum at of dot that it was on above a um, Byzantine floor, but a floor which uh, but but the context was uh, um, was Islamic. Um, the, right. So, and they so, sort of waffle a little bit because my sense is, is that the samples are are C14 dated to the seventh century. Right. Right. And that's really right at the transition. Exactly. Exactly. So they were, and, and they were here, I, I wrote down a quote from the article. We were are unable to directly relate the sequenced early Islamic Avdad great pips to the Byzantine negative wine industry. However, they did make a connection. And I think this is important that the type of, of rainwater um, cultivation they were doing that was at its peak in the Byzantine period clearly continued into the Islamic period. So right. it's exactly your point that things really didn't change radically with the coming of- At, at least, right. It, I mean, you know, there is change obviously, but it, at places like Avdat, you know, there's probably a, a chunk of time in which things are, you know, sort of staying the same and slowly changing and, you know, things change in- unpredictable but systematic ways you know right. political change doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean economic change economic change might follow and obviously what we're talking about here is islamic prohibitions against drinking and the production of wine uh but we know that you know there's there are christians and jews who continue to produce and and uh drink yeah. wine and we exactly. also know that you know undoubtedly lots of early muslims we're also probably uh, partaking until the prohibition really became, you know, more culturally accepted and, uh, you know, more deeply embedded within the, you know, landscape, both right. figuratively and literally. And, and this particular site or this place within Avdat anyway, uh, where these were found is associated with some sort of Christian, even if it's post-Byzantine Christian monastic, something or other, it was associated ah. with the building, right? It was associated with the building with wow. wall paintings. And I think that the one of the little uh, pieces of the article mentions how specialized wineries, and they're talking about contemporary specialized wineries and monasteries um, are using these, you know, are using a wider uh, palette of varieties than what Alex you mentioned earlier, the eleven, you know, the, the eleven big industrial varieties. They're the noble varieties. They're no, the, right, noble, the noble varieties. You know, the ignoble varieties. And so what what's interesting there is monasteries as these bastions or centers or nodes of ancient technology, ancient varieties, all sorts of things that have been sort of lost over the last thousand years, maybe get preserved in these little, you know, these little enclaves. Yeah. And so we can think about monasteries in a in a much different way. Uh, monasteries as places where ancient society, ancient, uh, ancient knowledge and ancient technologies and um, ancient varieties of you know, right. uh, they're literally in this case a kind of some of them a, a, a refu refugium <laughs> for for you know def otherwise defunct species or varieties. Right. 
right? right. But now, and now they're coming, and now they can sort of, you know, they they're being revivified right. as places that you know maintain these traditions. And now we need those traditions because now, in order to meet, you know, the 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 needs of the global wine market, we're going to have to start making wine in much more arid zones. Right. And so these monasteries, you know, have a lot of proprietary intellectual property um, that they can utilize and play on. And that's a really interesting kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. And and together with that, and it's something I read, but I probably read it on Wikipedia, so I don't know where the piece of information comes Absolutely from. authoritative. Don't yeah. ever say that in public. I know, <laughs> but I, I want to be honest because I don't, I didn't look no, up. No, never be honest. I didn't trace it back. Honest. Anyway, that um, in the Byzantine period, um, wine made in the Holy Land appealed to priests to use in communion while we're talking about this religious thread. So it, there was, even, even though it was not, you know, it, it, it lasted even when there were called the 11 noble, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so in other words it the had noble truths of the 11 noble <laughs> varietals varietals okay yeah so so yeah even it's small but it's important that was the point um to religious folk so we can only say here mano manashevitz oh boy you had that in your back pocket i didn't i know i wrote that. it down earlier that's um, a good one it is a good one never yeah. gets old well, but it, there's also I, one of my questions from all this is is obviously what what this wine tasted like. Ah, and mm -hmm. and yes, it's a white wine. We kind well, of know what white wine tastes well, like. And well, that well, there was just one example that was white. But let me just interrupt you for a second. Um, I we I think we should emphasize it's we've mentioned it, but we should emphasize that this Negev wine was had an international reputation, right? Yeah. and yeah. was being. Um, exported and used from South Arabia to Egypt to Europe to East Africa. And so uh, this stuff was how whatever it tasted like, it was well regarded. Yes, yes. And now, right. And and it sh should be mentioned that the, the closest relative to this white wine is the um, Aswad Karech variety, which is still found and made in Lebanon, right. which and I never... I've and, never had, but and I, Greece and, 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 Greece. and then later into Crete, right? Uh, Greece yeah. and Crete. Yeah. Right. right. And I thought that was actually fascinating. So Alex, if you want to taste it, I think we can probably find you some, we might have to go to Greece or to Lebanon. <laughs> we have to go to one of the big liquor stores right. as, uh, no, I'll just get on drizzly or something and, <laughs> uh, see what, see if they can deliver it tomorrow. And in fact, there was some there was some speculation about this um, the the modern Greek thing that derives from the Aswad Kare variety um, that um, it's it has it's also called Syriki, which might derive from the word Syria or from Sark Sarki in Arabic, um, um, or alternately might derive from the word Sorek. Um, which apparently is, well, we know about the Sarek yeah, Valley. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like I think that. more importantly, the Aswad Karak variety is found in in Latakia, mm. uh, or ultimately it, it is found in Latakia. And so there's this, you know, coastal Lebanon, Syria um, area, region for right. this particular variety, um, which then later finds a home in, in Greece and Crete. 
better put. <laughs> right. So what does it say about the evolution, not a, not simply of trade, but of of um, taste, of taste preferences? Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, we, we all kind of know what a burgundy tastes like. And, and there are a million different, uh, you know, producers of burgundy. We all know what a, I don't know, Merlot tastes like. Uh, who um, drinks Merlot? <laughs> not, not us. <laughs> there was a very good wine movie where that, you know. What was that called? Sideways? Sideways? Yeah. Yeah, with, um, I can't remember his name, but yeah. Where they really. Paul Giamatti. That's it. Thank you. Paul Giamatti, where he really, really slams Merlot. Right, and that's a and that's a great example because Merlot is one of the the classic varieties. Um, and here you, but for for whatever reason, it became kind of a you know kind of a middle class suburban, um, you know, cliche at some point in the early twentieth century, and then it was parodied in this in this movie. And I don't know. Now, how no one drinks it. <laughs> well, I'd say I don't. I don't know how low sales are, and we would be happy to plug it. That's right. Absolutely. If our listener is was in the wine business, but um, you know, so how do how do these things get their get their reputations? Well, that's a really. I mean, that is a huge, complicated mm -hmm. issue, and you know, particularly a lot in of, the ancient world. Well, I don't think it's any less complicated now. Well, this is no. This is actually so. So now you know you have to have a a wine tasting, and people have the palates are specifically trained, and you have to be an expert, and you have to know everything, and the bouquet, and all the stuff that I know nothing about. Um, but most of us just drink wine because we like it, and some of us can't really tell the, tell difference, the difference between a fifteen dollar bottle and a hundred dollar bottle in terms of taste, or you know, it's it's well, so it's a it's today it's an elitist kind of a thing. So, but it's been made middle class. Yeah. Well, it, it it's it, it's elitist in the sense that um, it's a signifier um, of of social status. You know, <laughs> oh, I drink my I, I drink my my wine from a bottle, not a box. Right. Right. And exactly. Then, and then and then Isaac Asim, not Isaac, uh, Eric Asimov will write an article saying that. Boxed wine is is superior to. It's actually better, right? And you know uh, this this happened when when wine started producing twist off tops, and it was you know those those were shunned by right. the by the viterate, and right. then it came to be known that no twist off tops in many ways, especially for middle range wines, are much better because you really get assured that you're not going to get a a whatever spoiled bottle, right. and so you know all of these things are changed, but. All of these things change, but I think there's a couple of things that are important. And this applies to a wide range of subjective kinds of experiences. So for those of us, you know, who grew up with speakers, you know, you know, what's the best speaker? Well, the best speaker is the one that you like. You know, what's the most beautiful um, Persian or, you know, Southwest Asian carpet. Um, it's the one that you like, right? right? Ultimately. Right. And, and I think the okay, same- Okay, but, but we don't all agree on the things that we don't like. Well, you like what you like. 
Yes, but what about the things that you don't like? You don't I think like that this you... tastes like crap. Right, you don't but, like but what you, you like don't it. like. That but doesn't mean that there's I not... The second part of... I'm sorry, Rachel, let me just... No, I was just going to say, that doesn't mean that. that there's not an elitist market and that things don't kind of get blown up and Stratified. what yeah, the people sure. think is good is known. You know, that's what drives prices up. You know, and like, think of the art market. Right. Well, and art is the most extreme example of this, right. but, but there's marketing. So marketing, I think plays a huge role and I suspect it played an equally huge role, you know, probably without the degree of refinement in the ancient world. So there's marketing and then, and then there's, and, and marketing tells us what we like and what we don't like. And it certain, it, it, what am I trying to say here? Is it a marketing creates audiences and creates you know, the, the, the taste palette. Yeah. And then there's, and then there's the economic or financial side of things. I mean, if you only drink of a $180 bottle of bourbon once. Yeah. You'll never, you, you, you won't have the palate refinement to say, oh yeah, that's a really great bourbon compared right. to a $40 bottle of bourbon. But if you can only afford a $25 bottle of bourbon, then you can find perfectly respectable $25 bottles of bourbon. So right. it's a it's a very complicated mix. And That's let's true. not deceive ourselves. If you go over to someone's house and you want to impress them, uh, you'll bring an expensive bottle of wine, regardless of how it tastes, because you probably never tasted it. <laughs> That's probably true. Now, how right? can we apply? You're absolutely right. So, how can we apply this to the ancient world, to the Byzantine world? We can either say that those same kinds of imperatives are in force, and I would suspect that they are. So, yeah. the reputation that that central Negev wines had for export was probably due in part to the exporters themselves saying, "Yeah, this is a great wine," right. and making it available. Well, so how that. would that have worked? The 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 central Negev. Wine Producers Association, you know, gets up a fund to send so, 10 amphora to, to the coast. And they have a, they set up a little booth here. Try, try this wine. No, I don't think so. Get a buzz can, going. I don't think you can refine it down to those kinds of levels. We're never going to know. I think it's more like a big importer exporter somewhere on some coast someplace, let's say Gaza, but e it could equally be Cyprus, or it could be someplace on the Red Sea, because East Africa is getting these wines, has a big consignment of this stuff from the central Negev, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they want to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So they price it accordingly, and they literally just ship it and talk it up when they get to this port. And it was respectable enough so that people drank it. And one of the I guess important features of the article that we didn't really discuss is that the height of these central Negev wines is from what the fifth to the mid sixth century, right? So roughly around 150 years, but that the industry itself lasted longer than that. Yeah. And so it lasts until there's no longer buy-in from the market. Right. But clearly there was at least a century and a half, where this stuff was highly regarded. Right. So, right. so my right. question is, how do, how do, and this is the question that we, we ask pretty much every episode, how do, <laughs> um, how do markets and producers um, know about each other? 
or they just know because it's in the air. You know, the 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 tin farmers of Afghanistan, or no, sorry, it was Uzbekistan. 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 Right. No, no, no mean <laughs> notes. Yeah, let's let's not. Uh... Um, how do they know? Like, oh, ten thousand miles to the west, there's a market. Well, they're um, having a viral <laughs> moment. That's all. <laughs> but there's also moment. a little difference because there's less object uh, subjectivity about tin. You need tin to make bronze. It yeah. doesn't taste good. It does. It has to be of a certain quality so that the bronze is okay. But it's far less subjective. So tin is like we need tin. Where can we get it? Oh, it's coming in from the east. We don't know where, but. But all of this subjective stuff, and it can expand to the taste of grapes and to the taste of especially raisins, right? So if you go to these big Central Asian, you know, market cities like Kashgar or Turfan, when I went to Turfan, there were like 18 varieties of, of raisins, mm -hmm. right? And it was like, whoa, what's going on here? Lots and lots of different kinds of raisins. And I tasted as many varieties as I could. But if you only taste something once or twice, you're never going to develop that palate. Well, that's true. And I really think it's something between what the two of you are saying. It's not let's set up a booth at the port city and, you know, promote our wine. And it's it's not let's get rid of our wine because we have an overstock. Let's reduce the price. I think it's somewhere in between. I think it's uh, somehow or other. And I don't know how it got out that this is a reasonably priced, good tasting <laughs> wine. And um, people started to like it. And it's also a little bit you know, it's being grown in this arid region and it has um, maybe exotic it has characteristics. Different... What characteristics? Exotic. Exotic characteristics. Either it tastes uh, different or just the fact that it's grown in this arid region makes it kind of cool. And it went viral sometime in the, I don't know, fifth century and people started to know about it and liked it. And also in terms of the end of the, you know, I mentioned um, the coming of Islam, but let's not forget about the Justinian plague of 541 <laughs> i think it started oh look at you <laughs> yeah i looked that up obviously but um <laughs> but uh you know that also killed a lot of people changed markets at least temporarily right so <laughs> so the decline can be seen you know mid 6th century decline and then things change again in the 7th century um but i just think it's kind of a a bit of a viral moment for the wine this particular wine in this particular moment okay but how did <laughs> how did they Alex do it never, you're never going to be happy with these answers you're always going to be you know because because we're never going to know never going to know oh, I, I i realize that well yes and no yes and no <laughs> because because if we go elsewhere in the negev um and we and we stay with our late was it late antique yeah I, um <laughs> These uh, these caravanserai where they have where they have you know shellfish and stuff that we oh, talked right. about. We talked about that in episode one ninety seven B or whatever it was. And if you subscribe, you can get <laughs> access to all the episodes. <laughs> That's right. Special decoder ring. <laughs> um, you know, so so there's the process, uh, you know, sort of captured in its garbage. Uh, in, in its leavings, so to speak, mm -hmm. and and now you know the, the the this winery, these grape pips are are kind of the origin point for a trade, which then went somewhere north, south, east, west, and um, <laughs> those being really the only <laughs> possible directions it could go to, <laughs> up and down, being completely out of 
out of the realm of possibility at that point. Right. Um, the Byzantine mole people weren't weren't taking <laughs> down long shoots. Right, and... The balloon people were taking it to uh, stratosphere. Right. So well, no, you produce. Look... You're a wine producer. You produce wine. You put it in jar. And you say, "Now what do I do with it?" Okay, just go. Well, this you know? no, but this is uh, something else that we've discussed a lot, and what I think is is crucial and continues to resonate and exist today, and that's. The money is in the logistics. The money is in the people who can connect production to markets. And I think it's those logistic people with that logistical expertise. And and Alex, you and I have been talking about logistical expertise since writing our dissertations and the establishment of the Egyptian state in the Egypto-Canaanite relations. So, right. and we were there. That's how old. That's how old <laughs> exactly we were. we were there. Uh, um, but it's this logistical expertise that you see played out in in Breaking Bad in the most eloquent way, right? I mean, I think I think Breaking Bad is the best way to sort of um, understand the ins and outs and importance yeah, of logistical. That's a good expertise. point. So and it's, the, it's the middlemen who bring the, who bring the word and the and and, and the and the backing, and, and they make the money. Right, they make it work and they make the money because they they. They have they uh, assume the most risk, yeah. right? Because they're involved in actually moving these big bulky materials. But I think also just to finish, and then uh, uh, Rachel, you can go. It's it's these people with logistical expertise who are doing the marketing because they have so they they uh, assume so much risk in the shipment, the transshipment of these big bulky things that they're the ones that have to come up with logos and titles and the idea and have the charisma to sell these products because they take on so much risk. When you take on risk, you get very creative and you get very wed to the process of, of, of really creating and maintaining a secure market. So I think it's the people on the coast, let's say Gaza, that these transshippers in Gaza, they're the ones who are saying, no, this central Negev wine, you haven't tasted wine until you've tasted uh -huh. <laughs> They're selling it because That's they it. assume the risk. Right. And they're, and they're moving back and forth anyway. Right. Uh, because they're moving camels or they're moving tin or they're moving slaves and, or they're moving and they're, whatever. Right. And they're, put, and they're buying ships or they're buying pieces of ships and right. they have consignments on ships. Right. Well, I and mean, they're so stopping by they, and they're saying, "Oh, this is this is good wine. We could do something with this." Right, right. and then they're telling there are some unanswerable questions that you guys are bringing up right now, which is, I want to know who the the workers are. You know, the people who are trampling the grapes and picking the grapes from the vines, and and you know, they're living in these small, diffuse villages in the Negev Highlands, um, and but they're giving... are they living at Avdat or in you know Avdat, Avdat. suburban Avdat? Right. Avdat adjacent. So right, Avdat adjacent. So so they're um so they're the ones who are doing the labor. So they're working for someone or or supplying someone. So you know how many are there stages of middlemen? I, I love the idea of the people on the coast. What what did you guys say? Logistical expertise. <laughs> I, oh I God, like the, Rachel, I you gave... haven't been listening to us. We've been using that word, those words for thousands of years i've been tuning you guys out for thousands of years well that's because you're smart well, when you get, exactly. when you get into We're the dumb. whole early bronze urbanization thing i just can't you know i can't even anymore I have anymore but yeah 
Um, but in any case, I, I like this idea very much that they're the movers and the shakers and they're putting the effort in and they're the ones, um, as you said, who have the most risk. Um, but how, you know, how many sort of down the line connections, how many middlemen are there between the people doing the labor and the people doing the selling? Well, I... I said it's an unanswerable question. Well, he's he's pondering it as uh, as the New Delhi freight train rolls by. <laughs> you like sound effects in this podcast. You can just let it rip. I've always wanted sound effects in this uh, in this podcast. I figure some we need to have something to sell. Well, sell I, train, I, trains are good methods of transport, so that would work out well. True. I hear they're going to make a comeback. <laughs> That's a, those are good questions, Rachel. And and um, I would say that uh, we don't really know and that we've probably underestimated the number of, uh, you know, components in these kinds of trade sequences, um, but that with increased refinement, scientific refinement and analytical methods, I think we're going to be getting lots and lots of insights. So, for instance, the tin has already opened up the late bronze age to some kind of a far, you know, or a Eurasian Uzbekistan mm -hmm. link, but how many, you know, how many, <laughs> how many caravanserai operators are involved? You know, who knows? I mean, we all know that when you, when you ship something or when you move, even something as simple as moving within the United States, that if you're not careful, with the mover that you use, your stuff will be thrown into a big truck with 18 other people. And that's, and th those trucks are like, are like, you know, Ula Baroon. They yeah. stop at lots of different places and take on and take off and take on and take off. And, and that, and unknowingly you assume a lot of risk that your stuff is going to make it. If you pay a higher price, you get your own truck with only your own stuff that gets, moved from point A to point B, but that's the most expensive way. Right. So uh, you're right, Rachel, we don't know how many, um, you know, different angles are, are operative in all of these cases. And I think you're probably right. We've probably been underestimating, but, but we don't know. I think we'll get more resolution on this as more uh, archeological data and environmental data gets, gets, you know, um, analyzed at higher and higher degrees of resolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the ship, the 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 question of Mediterranean shipping is a kind of nautical analog, right? Because there are you know thousands of shipwrecks from all periods, and there are in a lot of them are in most of them probably are independents of some sort. But we also know in in certainly in the Roman period. You know, the Greeks and the Romans, there are imperial official fleets and things like that, which is sort of governmental trade. So it's a combination of all sorts of different, all sorts of different levels. And it's very hard to, um, you know, categorize them, particularly since in the case of shipping, they're on the bottom of the ocean. Um, and in the case of, uh, of, uh, you know, overland trade, there's, they leave very little, the shipping itself leaves very little residue. Yeah. They're cav they're caravanserai. Um, now, now with, you know, garbage middens, which are very interesting and revealing as, 
as previously noted. Right, that's and, that's part of the whole route, the whole shipment right. route. But it's not necessarily the shippers themselves. Right. Um, as opposed to, you know, the way station operators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are in lots, in different periods, forts, um, right. which are, you know, official or quasi-official uh, installations to protect frontiers and trade. So, again, it comes down to focusing on the exports <laughs> rather than the imports. Right. And the, and the process. And, I think we uh, need to change the name of the podcast. And I think we have to call it ancient globalization. Wow. Yeah, that's a real, that's a real seller, big seller yeah. right there. Get a new logo. <laughs> How about Vandalay importing, exporting? That's, nice. right. <laughs> that's, that's a winner. That's a proven winner, which will wanna, not open us mention, up to any lawsuits at all. I want to mention one other thing because I can't resist. And that is there, there was a, a nice little discussion of rainwater harvesting, or not a really discussion, but at least use of the term. Um, which brings to mind, of course, uh, you know, Frank Herbert's epic novel Dune <laughs> and how, um, you know, Dune was starting out as science fiction. Well, it is science fiction, but more and more we're getting Dune-like scenarios in the ancient world that we're now using that knowledge and information to maintain ourselves in, in the world today. The one thing we don't have are giant worms. Well, we have literal, well, we have figurative worms that are consuming us. Oh, that's good. Right? I mean, you know, we have all of the tech companies. Those are, those are, you know. Is, is that the worm are, itself or is that the, um, the, the great families like the Harkonnens and the, I think the, the great Atreides? Yeah, that's too easy. I think it's the, I think it's the worms, hmm. you know, they give us this the little cross, the, spice the melange that we so desperately need smartphones laptops computer cars um but the price that we pay is that you know we think we can control them but they control us soon to be a major motion picture i was gonna say i mean it is easy to just you know equate zuckerberg and uh, bezos to baron harkonnen at al but that's too easy. And when have we ever taken the easy route? <laughs> I mean, if we had taken the easy route, would we be doing a podcast in 2023, or would we would be counting, you know, rubies on our on our, you know, bespoke oh. island in the Caribbean? I would pick the latter. <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> okay. Final thoughts. <laughs> It's hard to top a ruby yacht island kind of <laughs> scenario. Uh, you like what you like. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you like Retsina? Nope. Do you? Yeah, I do. But do you like it because you want to like it? Like, <laughs> and that, we didn't even get into the whole acquired taste thing. That's a good point. <laughs> right? Like mushrooms. Like, you know, how many kids like mushrooms? And how many adults love mushrooms and during moral season will pay, you know, $85 a, you know, a gram for morals and, you know, things like that. We, right. you know. Okay. Well, we'll save that for another conversation. I'm sure we'll find some other, you know, commodity that that will apply to. Um, Did you like Retsina the first time you tried it? 
Did you say, whoa, what is this? I de- yeah, that's exactly what I said. I really? Like, this is so this is so weird and different, but wow, it's it's great. And a good retina is a is a beautiful thing, and a bad retina is not a yeah. not a good thing. Um, it's like kind of licking the pavement, but um, but it's also very contextual. You know, I had it there, I liked it there. Exactly. I want to go back there. Exactly. I've had it here. It's okay, but it's not quite the same. Right, and that context is such a central part to yeah. tastes and smells and auditory stimulation. We love. You know, there have been studies done that people really continue to resonate for decades uh, after the, uh, based on the music that they hear when they're, you know, 11 to 15 or 16 years old. Earlier for women, later for men, as always. (laughs) Uh, So that music that we loved when we were, you know, young adolescents is the music that continues to resonate for us, you know, well after that's um yeah that, that's actually a good final thought right there i i just want to say that i would like them to take one of these precious 16 pips and plant it and uh, then we'll know exactly what we're talking about um mm. you know, israeli wineries are trying to reconstruct some ancient wines and so oh. on people are doing it with with beers um and what? Yeah. The, the Methuselah date. date. I was just going to say, right, the Methuselah tree. Exactly. So I think we need to take one of these pips and plant it. And not one Gladys Knight reference. <laughs> Boy. Are we, we just... missed an opportunity or what? Yeah. Glad you um, stuck in at the end. Wow. Well, all right. Well, it's it's time to catch that midnight train to Georgia then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, All I can say is, Mano Manischewitz, what an episode. So, as always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. You can follow him on Instagram at at 54BPM. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, a division of Yoyodyne Propulsion Systems. It's the only place to watch Igor Cassini's Million Dollar Showcase, Fridays at 9. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Hit the little heart-shaped button at the bottom of this page. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at @thisancient, and on Facebook. Contact us via electronic mail at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.